This is Coda Radio, episode 167 for August 14th, 2015. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week over there on that East Coast, yes, it's our host, who is excellent and established. Why, folks, it's Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. Hello, Mr. Fisher. How are you? Hey, happy Friday to you. You know, Happy Friday. If we, if we would have thought ahead, we could have done this in the afternoon, so we could have legitimately had a good excuse to, to drink. Because I'm getting into wine now. That's true. Just oh, a little really? Bit. Just I, a little I bit, yeah. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, um, <clears throat> it's just I kind of have, like, this ongoing kind of gut issues that I have to kind of be careful with. And if I have, like, more than two beers in a night, I can sometimes aggravate it. One beer and I'm kind of okay. But you know what? One beer is never enough. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a potato chip, Mr. Dominic. So, uh, but with the wine... Uh, with the wine, if you know, I can't go crazy, but uh, I don't really seem to, doesn't seem to be aggravating any of those issues. So I've just been trying to find different wines that don't taste like uh, rotten grapes, which has, for me, been difficult. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about today, is it? Are we here to talk about wine today? I thought we were. <laughs> no, actually, uh, you teased it. I don't know if, we, if I don't know. I think it actually was in the post show. I don't think it made it into the recording, but. Uh, you wanted to talk about uh, Vulcan coming to Android, so we've got some good information yes. about that, and also uh, some information about what's wrong with OpenGL. Why do we got to get rid of OpenGL? What's with all of this? We're going to talk about that a little bit and describe why Apple and Microsoft and Google all want to solve this problem in a big way. Uh, and then after that, we have to ask, has it been peak iPad and peak tablet? And before you go f- too far from that, somebody who creates a key piece of software for Jupiter Broadcasting has had to pull his app out of app stores saying he's not making enough money. And it comes and he, it's the numbers, the numbers, because he's been in business for, for over 10 years. And so the numbers he has before app store, during app store and post app store are astonishing and also a little depressing uh so we'll get to that in a little bit plus we have some really really great feedback coming up some some thought-provoking feedback and if we get time if we have time uh we're going to talk about this article that the subreddit asked us to discuss how to know when you're ready to be a freelance uh how to know when you're ready to freelance as a self-taught coder if we have time We'll get to that, too. We'll see. Uh, We have a lot of show to cover today. So let's start, Mr. Dominic, with uh, something that uh, you teased uh, on the post show last week and something our buddies over at Valve seem to be pretty excited about. uh, Vulcan. And uh, Vulcan is coming over to Android, which seems to be like a pretty, pretty huge deal. Uh, uh, They're going to have feature sets on Vulcan. Android supports incoming and... uh, the Kronos Group is offering to, uh, you know, basically, the people behind Vulcan is offering to basically become a full-fledged uh, Android support group. Now, <clears throat> maybe we could take a quick deviation before we get to Vulcan. Maybe we could talk about what, what the hell they're trying to do here. And uh, I think maybe the best way to sort of summarize this is uh, Mike and I could break down uh, why you want a low-level graphics API that's closer to the hardware 
um, and something that doesn't use a bunch of extensions. But honestly, we could also, in the same breath, explain Metal, Apple's solution, and they do a much better job with pictures than we probably would ex- solving or explaining the problem. So I'm going to play a little bit from their WWDC keynote where they introduced Metal for iOS 8 back in 2014, which sort of is trying to solve the same problem. So I'll, I'll let Fred go Metal. here. I think his name is. So, as you know, OpenGL is the standards-based way for high-performance 3D graphics on iOS, giving you access to the power of the A7 processor. But increasingly, if you look at what goes on in the performance of the game, in addition to what the game wants to accomplish, OpenGL ends up being a thick layer of overhead between the game and the hardware. And obviously, this is going to be universal for Android, Linux, iOS, Windows. Well, now we have Metal. And Metal dramatically reduces that overhead, giving the game near bare-to-the-metal access to the power of A7. The results are stunning, up to 10x faster draw call rates. Now, in addition to these dramatically reduced uh, overheads, you get access not just to graphics, but to the compute power of the GPU. And Metal supports pre-compiled shaders and efficient multi-threading, so you can always get the most out of the processor. Now, we've been working with the leading... Now, we could probably stop there, because that, all that is uh, <clears throat> very true uh, for uh, Vulkan as well. In fact, uh, there's an interesting uh, demo online that uh, we played a little bit of in, uh, uh, in uh, Linux Unplugged this week, because we talked about this from a Linux a desktop perspective as well. And in this uh, video, it's called Gnomes Per Second, and in this video, they compare on a Power VR chip, so something like uh, the Nexus player is the unit they're uh, demoing this on. Uh, they uh, and in this demo, they show uh, Power Power VR rogue GPUs running uh, Vulkan on the left side <clears throat> and OpenGL ELS on the right side. And one of the things that really strikes me about this demo is oh, Vulkan is much, much better about using the GPU over the CPU. And when it does go to the CPU, Vulkan is much better at multi-threading. And so now we're seeing these phones with eight, eight cores in them uh, and also, of course, desktops. This makes a lot of sense. And Vulkan seems to be very smooth. It's going to have uh, a, a very clean way of feature sets so that way... Game developers can write to these feature sets, and the Vulkan, the Vulkan system is, is capable of determining what the hardware is capable of and then exposing that to the game. And it's capable of scaling from these power VR uh, uh, GPUs all the way up to NVIDIA big-time desktop GPUs and ATI cards. Or, I'm sorry, AMD cards. So uh, it seems to me, Mike, and, and I'm just kind of looking at the, at the beginning of this, by Google backing Vulkan, they're kind of locking in Vulkan as the next OpenGL replacement. And I think it's, this has huge ramifications um, uh, for, uh, for desktop gaming on Linux, for SteamOS, for mobile gaming. I don't know what it means for iOS exactly. Probably n- nothing, which is going to be interesting in itself. And I think it's also it's fascinating from the standpoint of the way Vulkan is built is even if, like, say, Windows, say Microsoft didn't want to ever create, like, a, a feature set or a profile or whatever for Vulkan, uh, the Kronos group could still make one The developers could still target. It would still be the blessed official standard because it would just be blessed by the Kronos group instead of Microsoft. Whereas if Vulkan did get support on, say, Mac OS X, Apple could have an Apple profile 
uh, if I'm, I might be getting some of the vernacular wrong here, but they could have an Apple preset profile that developers could target. And it's and if they never decide to do it, then Chronos Group can take that on. And it's a really interesting it's a really interesting approach, and it seems to have a lot of longevity. And pretty much, I think anything that pretty pretty much supports OpenGLS at this point will be able to support Vulkan too. So the I believe existing hardware on the market is pretty much good to go. So uh, Google could have gone their own way here, right? They could have made a Metal or a DirectX. And, and we would be in a completely different situation. So I believe in, in, in this case, and I don't know if you see it differently, Mike, but this seems like good guy Google to me. Good guy Google, huh? Look at these gnomes per second. I mean, Vulcan's going to bring us good gnomes per second, finally. Look at that. That's some smooth gnomes per second right there. Uh, and, and no joke. I mean, that's going to make a bigger, that's a bigger deal on battery life. If you start accelerating the UI, instead of having OpenGL accelerated UIs, you could have Vulcan accelerated UIs. This could make this could this could eventually bring in a, a an entirely new accelerated UI for just basic applications with much lower cost on battery life, potentially. And and okay. Google didn't ha- Google could have gone off and made their own thing. And maybe they still will, but but why would they? Well, I mean, they do for a lot of other things in Android now. They've closed up a lot of aspects of Android, actually. That's, that's been the only thing is, like, so imagine if they would have somehow. Now, let's, let's just entertain this crazy idea. It may not even be possible. But you know how they've been sort of playing up everything? You know, they, they, everything, Mike. They've taken the mail app, the browser, the, the, the camera app. Everything has been, has been is closed. Has, they've, taken the, they've, they've, known they've, they've just sort of abandoned the open source version that's in ASOP, and they've gone with closed play editions of all these apps. And imagine if they could have had Play Graphics. And when you got a Google Blessed device, you also got a, the Play Graphics API. And then they could rev the Play Graphics API like they rev all the other Play services. And it would be a huge, huge incentive to have a Google Play device because developers are going to target these Play APIs. And man, wouldn't that also lock in people that are making these set-top boxes also to have to be hooked into Google? Kind of genius. But they didn't do it. Instead... They said, no, we're just going to bake Vulcan into Android. Now, how the, who the, how, how the hell they're going to do this, I don't know exactly. But uh, I, I haven't looked into that area specifically. I don't know if it's going to be post-M or if they're going to issue updates to previous versions of Android or what their plan is. But I, I, I commend them for going this route instead of some sort of play graphics route. Don't you, don't you see how they could have gone completely closed off, lock you into the Google ecosystem? Yeah, but I don't understand why you think they would have. I mean, that's a huge effort, right? It's a huge effort, but it's a huge it's a huge incentive to have a play device. Ah, maybe we'll see. I, I think I think it was a good move, but maybe they'll eventually do what they do with Aesop and close it up. Well, if you think about it, like Apple's differentiating iPads, which we'll talk about later, but and a lot of their devices on having better gameplay, right? Android's not particularly strong in that area. Maybe this will help. Oh, yeah, that's right. So that's a, that's a good point. They're, they're not necessarily in a market position of dominance, are they? Right. So this, it's more, to me, it's more a catch-up move than an than a advantage. Now, you've become now, a big Android guy, though. What do you think? Is this exciting? You know, it's funny. I use Android devices very differently than I use iOS devices. I rarely install apps on Android. Um, huh. You know, I'm less interested in the new shiny hardware. I don't particularly play games on Android either. I mean, I play a couple casual ones. Uh, Warby's Adventure is fun. Yeah, you know, yesterday yeah. they announced the new S6 uh, Edge Plus. So my phone is uh, now outdated. It's less than eight months old. My my Samsung S6 Edge, which is fine. That happens. And then they uh, n- announced the Note 5. 
And you know, I I think I I the S six Edge. It was a new device. You know, the, the, the curved screen, I was curious to see how well that looked like if, if it was sort of like an infinity pool for a screen and how content sort of goes off the edge. It turns out it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's, a, it's an incredible experience. And when I show the phone to people, they ooh and ah at that. Like, it's surprising how universally accept, just like impressed people are by the content sliding off the edge. Uh, but then there's the practical side, like typing like the Q button, like, you know, like the, 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 on the QWERTY keyboard, the buttons on the edge of the keyboard. Sometimes the taps don't register right. so well on the edges. Uh, if there's like a little ad and they put a little teensy tiny X up in the corner to close the full screen ad, yeah, you're going to spend three minutes trying to tap that ad if it's on the edge of the display. Like it's just the, like the swipe, the swipe edge functions would be useful if there wasn't a 25-second delay before they activate sometimes if the phone's been sleeping for a while. It's just okay, all- so you're – you're not really loving it, then. Well, it's just it, you know the, the 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 dream fades when you're when you're three months into it, and it took it took four I guess it took four or five maybe six months before I finally got a software update that solved it, so I wasn't having to reboot the phone daily. It's better now, and it's a good phone, but I it kind of it was like I guess I'd forgotten that there's this this cycle in Android hardware where you just kind of get burned, and there's always something better around the corner. And you device by the time by the time your device finally starts to work, kind of okay. There's a brand new device on the market, and it's not like that doesn't happen with with other like with I guess with the iOS devices or whatever previous before we had smartphones. But it it sort of it took the wind out of my sails, and I'm like, ah, you know what? I got caught up in it. I'll wait another three years again before I get. Or actually, the last time I got caught up in it was when the Nexus Five came out. And I think that was a good purchase. And I don't regret the S6 purchase, but um, Samsung has some nice things about it, but there's a lot of show in it. And it just kind of, I have a hard time getting excited about it now. So we'll see. I'm kind of there with you. So, but if they could get, if they could get, you know, we were going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about the the horrible, horrible state of uh, of tablets right now. And I don't know, if you could get a really great, great graphics API... Um, maybe that would help. Maybe that would turn things around. Well, we'll talk about that here maybe in a moment. Uh, I don't know. Any other thoughts on Vulcan, Mr. Dominic? <clears throat> Nothing major. No, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. And, you know, OpenGL is a little long in the tooth. But I don't really think it's going to be a huge game changer for a while. Mm, I think it's coming up pretty fast. It's, it's happening faster than I expected it to. Because, you know, Vulcan yeah. has not been around for a super long time, and it's already getting pretty good adoption. That's Vulcan. But, sorry, it, yeah, it is, it is a bit faster, true. Yeah. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I'm excited as a Linux user, and so that's why, of course, I'm like, come on, everybody, hurry up, hurry up, let's go, let's go. Uh, so. All right, I'll tell you about something else I'm excited about. Woo-wee, that's DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now and use our promo code CODERDIGITAL. That's one word, lowercase, over DigitalOcean. At DigitalOcean rocks. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. This is such a sweet system. All of these rigs are backed by Linux and KVM virtualization. They have HTML5 consoles, so you can get right to the machine from any device. They have a brilliant, brilliant interface, and it's all SSDs throughout their entire infrastructure. And so they've managed to pair great, great solid hardware with really fast connections, and then, of course, KVM. And it's just such a great setup. And that's, that's like the technicals of DigitalOcean. But that, that isn't the secret sauce of DigitalOcean. Uh, here's some secret sauce. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. $5 a month. You get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, all SSDs, yeah, one CPU, and a terabyte. 
Oh, a terabyte of transfer. You know, I should just start. I can make this into a wrap, I think. DigitalOcean also has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. This is critical because with the pricing, it's, it's, it just makes a lot of sense if you want to spin up multiple data centers in multiple different data centers and have a little redundancy or load balancing. It makes a lot of sense. Also, something that DigitalOcean doesn't really make a big stink about, but it's pretty neat. And you can do this like if you're within some in the same data center, and they have a lot of different data centers to choose from in different regions. So check this out in their interface. But like you can go in some of their data centers and set up private networking. So you can have multiple droplets, like a front-facing droplet, maybe run an Nginx, right? And then you can have some back-end uh, droplets, maybe a data store, uh, SQL database, backup, uh, a standby. I mean, when we're talking $5 a month, why not? But here is the – who is the this – is, this is like the really cool part. It's like the secret sauce here that I'm telling you now. That private networking, no transfer. No transfer charges over that private networking. So you could – if you did like front-end proxying or if you did – you could have your servers backing up over that private networking and it's not going against your transfer because it's all there local in your data center. So also the speeds are nuts, right? It's a super great way to do this. This is a really you – you can start using DigitalOcean in some really advanced and sophisticated ways. And they have like one-click deployment of applications and there's a lot of really great ways to utilize Docker up on DigitalOcean and CoreOS – which is really fascinating. Their interface makes all of this possible. It's simple and intuitive, and you can replicate it on a larger scale with their straightforward API. And the community has a lot of great apps and libraries already available using the API. It's great. So go over to DigitalOcean, try it out right now. They also have technical writers um, that go through and edit their tutorials. And they're often accepting tutorials, too. In fact, they're willing to pay for those tutorials. So I encourage you to go over to DigitalOcean and just look through the tutorial section, too, so you can see even after you've deployed your Linux machine or your FreeBSD machine, you're going to have a lot more you can do with it. So go over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code CODERDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio Program. They have some great systems over there. Go check it out. And uh, also, take advantage of the easy backups. Might as well save yourself some hassle. Okay, so uh, above Avalon, an Apple analysis from Wall Street to Silicon Valley blog uh, has been blogging for a little while about iPad sales, and everybody's just kind of been writing it off, but now it's almost getting too hard to ignore, and I want to talk about the tablet market. He says right here, the tablet market is in complete disarray. Uh, Only five short years ago, the iPad helped jumpstart the category, ushering in multi-touch computing and modern-day app revolution to large-screen devices. Today, there's never been a time when the tablet market faces so much unknown. Okay. Now, this is kind of interesting, especially if, you know, Apple's trying to get developers to create new versions of uh, iPad apps for iOS 9, or at least update them. And, of course, uh, Microsoft wants to sell the Surface. A quick look at iPad and tablet shipment data would show that things have gotten bad in recent quarters. However, in reality, things are much worse than quarterly shipment data would suggest. The seasonality found in the tablet segments is difficult to see. It makes it difficult to see these long-term problems. As a much better way to understanding what has been taking place is to look at the year-over-year change in shipments on a trailing 12-month basis. Now, uh, this smoothing effect he's applied here, when we scroll down here, it is devastatingly bad. Uh, as he puts it, um, the iPad tablet has been on decline for years, and things continue to worsen. The overall tablet market hitting a negative territory for the first time. All momentum in the market has been lost. It's now below... It's uh, The iPad is literally below 0%. I don't quite understand... Uh, he goes on to say that, uh, in reality, one reason sales momentum was slowing for iPad owners was they're not upgrading their devices. Uh, different data shows, and his own estimates, consumers have held on to their iPads on average for three years, which is longer than the iPhone's 2.6-year upgrade cycle. Since the tablet category is still young, the iPad three-year cycle is still extending and will likely go out as, fi- as far as five to six years. 
And then, to conclude, the continued migration of smartphone manufacturers to five-plus-inch screens isn't helping the matter either. Um, And he says, another consequence of growing large-screen smartphones' popularity is that uh, becoming increasingly difficult for Apple to market the iPad Air or iPad Mini. Features such as cameras and even Touch ID simply don't make as much sense on a device that can't be comfortably held in one hand or carried in a pocket. The iPad market and the tablet market is in trouble, and there is no change made to the lineup. Peak iPad! Is on the table. Peak iPad is a simple concept driven by the belief that underlining structural changes to the tablet market would result in the iPad losing most of its value propositions, leading to a prominent decline in sales. For example, Peak iPad is alive and well even though Apple is still selling iPods. I'm sorry, Peak iPod. Peak iPod is alive and well even though Apple is still selling iPods. The product category will never reach record quarterly sales again. Dun, dun, dun. Have we reached Peak iPad? Is the tablet market sort of... A snore, Mr. Dominic. Like, these devices, what? People are using them to watch Netflix. They're watching Netflix. Why do I yeah, need a new tablet to watch nobody's, Netflix? Nobody's doing, any, nobody's doing anything large with them. No. No. Yeah. That's the problem, right? And so, uh, isn't, but here's why I bring this up. Uh, this, the iPad was going to save the newspaper industry. The iPad was going to save the publishing industry. The iPad was going to give iOS developers a whole new platform to target, and it was going to make a whole bunch of more money for iOS developers. It was all going to be... It was going to destroy the PC. It was going to be the post-PC era. The iPad ushered in the post-PC era. Uh, no. All bust. Technology is just kind of... It's just kind of fading away. I actually wouldn't have thought that was a boom. I don't think they're gone. I just think they are an accessory device. They're not going to be the primary device that everybody hoped they were. And when it's an accessory device, you're not as inclined to upgrade it as often. It's more like an entertainment device. It's more like your TV or a DVR. Right, it's a consumption device. Yeah. Yeah. So not worth targeting or only worth targeting if you're making a consumption app or something loosely connected to that, I guess? That's probably the case, unfortunately. Ouch. Ouch. Well, maybe, do you think iOS 9 with a... It hasn't made a difference on Android, has it? And and maybe not really on the Surface either with side-by-side apps and things like that. I just don't really know if it's going to make a big difference. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Steve Jobs, if he knew now, if he knew now what's happening, I don't think he'd be happy. Uh, all right. So we also, in the uh, in the show notes, by the way, we have a link to uh, Rich Gren- Glendrich's blog, I think is how you say it. <laughs> no, it's not how you say it. He's an open-source developer, graphics programmer. Uh, he's been in the industry for a long time. He's a recovering OpenGL addict. He's worked at Valve, Microsoft, Digital Illusions. He's worked on Oculus. And he's got a great post about why OpenGL is got to go. He's, first of all, number one, 20 years of legacy. It needs a robust and major simplification pass. Uh, number two, GL context creation hell. Number three, the thread's current context may be implied this point, uh, quote, unquote, this pointer. Uh, he goes on with a, a whole bunch of reasons here. And uh, Wow. Extension hell is number 26. I would have thought it would have been sooner, uh, higher in the list. But um, great post if you want to know why people are so desperate to replace OpenGL. Our next story, hmm, our next story, the page is not loading because I think it's getting a whole bunch of attention right now because uh, it's from a really well-known uh, Apple developer who, uh, who creates uh, software that we use here in production, one of the uh, last proprietary pieces of software we use to get the shows out the door. So... His page is not loading right now, and I really kind of want to talk about this because uh, it's actually affecting the network, and it affects a lot of people that have tried to put their different applications in different stores. So while that loads, I'll do a quick uh, Linux Academy read, and we'll see if the page will load after that. All right, Mr. Dominic, you stand by over there. 
uh, this is your chance to get yourself a coffee. We'll see if that page loads. I'm getting a database error right now, but I'm, I'm trying Love to hit, I'm trying to get the Google Cache version to load. So we'll see. We'll see. It's down to the wire. I, you know what I need is like I need like something really dramatic to make it like we'll see. Like, come on, tell me where the database is. You know, Jack Bauer kind of style. But no, unfortunately, you don't get anything like that in this podcast. We don't have any high production sound effects or anything like that. So uh, while we try to get the database back, I'll tell you about Linux Academy. Go over to linuxacademy.com slash coders and get the Coder Radio discount. I love Linux Academy because it's created by people truly passionate about the subject material. They're not just doing it because it's a feature. It's not just something on the website they can say they have. I love it because they really, truly are passionate. And that's great because that makes the difference, doesn't it? That's why that means they're following this stuff because they want to. And that really reflects in the content. And I think that is fantastic. But from a practical standpoint, it also is just a great educational resource. They have step-by-step video courses, downloadable comprehensive study guides you can take with you. It comes with your own server, just spins it up on demand in the courseware as, oh, oh, and get this. The courseware, you get to choose from 7-plus Linux distributions. So the courseware will match the distro you choose. The virtual server matches the distro you choose. It's all customized boop, 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 to that. Now, from a production standpoint, that is, that is amazing. I, I, we, we considered when we were trying to launch How to Linux, we considered doing that, and it was an unbelievable uh, uh, amount of work. But you know what? That's the difference, right? Because they really care. And they have scenario-based labs that we get real hands-on experience. You'll go through something, and you get to actually experience it. That way you get... You know, actual experience under your belt. No, when you go to do it in a job scenario or for a client or for an employer, it's not your first time. And that kind of confidence really feels a lot better. And it makes it much easier to focus on the work. And if you ever get stuck in Linux Academy, they have instructor help available. They've just rolled out new courseware, too. So I encourage you, if you you already subscribe to Linux Academy, go over there and check out the new courseware. It's super exciting. And they have a great, great form where you can interact with a community that's stacked full of Jupiter Broadcasting community members. These nuggets are a lot of fun. You know, anywhere from like two minutes to 60 minutes, just deep dive into a course. And, of course, they have a broad range of anything around really Linux and open source. Android development, OpenStack, Docker, virtualization, all the things you would expect, plus the essentials, backing up, managing and administering a Linux system, introduction to package management in Linux, like the the intro basics, too, if you're just getting started or need to reacquaint yourself with some of those, they've got all of that. And you do all of it by getting started at linuxacademy.com slash coders. That supports this show, and it gets you the discount. linuxacademy.com slash coders. linuxacademy.com slash coders. And a special thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio on a Friday. linuxacademy.com slash coders. Thanks, Linux Academy. Okay. So let's see if the page cache low stupid thing. Why is this not working? Well, I have a uh, I have a uh, I have an annotated version that I can pull up here. So uh, you guys just won't get the visual of it, but that's okay, right? Uh, we don't we don't mind. Uh, I can still read it to you. Uh, so the uh, this is coming from uh, the reinvented blog, which is uh, the developer of Feeder. Feeder is uh, over ten years old. It predates the Mac App Store. Uh, it's mostly used by podcasters, but also some developers and people who run websites. It's, uh, it's, it's essentially a front end to generate clean, standards-based XML files that you can then use to create RSS feeds. And a lot of podcasters like this because there's a lot of automatic uh, podcast feed generators out there. Everything from SoundCloud to FeedBurner will, will generate a feed for you. The issue is, if any of these ever have an outage or ever have a mistake... All of your listeners suffer the consequences. And early on, uh, especially when FeedBurner was transitioning from an independent company to over to Google, 
we ran into a lot of problems. And people ended up getting multiple downloads and just you know mixed up feeds. And people thought it was our fault. And so the solution was to move it over to a manual feed processing application. And then we point FeedBurner at that, and we control the actual files that go into the feed, and then FeedBurner just acts as a, as a republisher. This is – it's complicated. It, the reason why I'm telling you this, though, is because we're not the only shop that does this. It's pretty much it's, – it's amazing. Every, everybody out there really – a lot of people – not everybody, but a lot of people out there using this application to do this. Uh, you know, even, 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 even sites that you – now, Twit just recently stopped. Uh, when they rolled out a new website, but even even podcasts that have like twenty five people that you know run the staff and have I don't know how many how many shows they have, they're publishing it with this one application called Feeder. So it's a pretty important application. And when they entered the Mac App Store, uh, it was interesting to see what happened. And and he talks about the advantages and disadvantages of the Mac App Store in this post, but I'm not really going to talk about that point. That's that's specific to the Mac App Store. What I want to talk about is what's universal to all app stores, all developers. If Ubuntu had an app store that went cray cray big, if the Microsoft Store actually ever sold anything. Any of that, it applies here. And it's Apple's 30% of all sales. And he says, whether the app costs $1 or 100 even though not all of my sales go through the App Store, Apple's 30% cut far exceeds what I pay the UK government in income tax and national insurance each year. And for that, I get things like health care, pension, education, transport, emergency services, defense, etc. To think of it another way. If I add up all the money they've taken since the store's launch in 2011, it could pay for my rent for almost seven years. This 30% cunt is cunt. <laughs> this 30% cut is having a devastating effect on me, particularly since Together, his other best-selling app, has predominantly moved to the Mac App Store sales for iCloud support. Consider the irony that I can't afford to buy the Apple kit I need to develop and test the apps they're selling. He can't buy the very gear he needs. Because of the cut they're taking. All things being equal, if Apple had taken 10% of my money over the last few years, I'd have no problem at all. Same if they'd taken 15%. At 20, I'd be breaking even. But 30% is killing me. Wow. Uh, do you agree, Mr. Dominic? Is 30% too much? Is it time to revisit this? Or is this just, sorry, you structured the business wrong. It's time to adapt to the app market ways. I think it's sorry you structured the business wrong, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. I think it is. But how could it cost Apple fifteen dollars to ship a fifty dollar app? It doesn't, but they're doing the credit card processing. They're hosting it. I mean, it's it's obviously not a break even kind of thing. It's more of a time thing, right? They're doing all these things for you. I still, it feels like twenty percent, maybe fifteen percent, would be more reasonable. Yeah, but in the bad old days of working with a publisher, you would get a lot less than seventy percent. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're right. You're this right. is a this is a yeah. big improvement. In on fact, what they it used would. In fact, and sometimes they would change the product name. They would change the logo and the packaging. But they'd remove your branding from it, and they treat it as their own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Huh. Um, you might not get you might not get anything until you've sold a certain volume. I have a hard time though because this guy, you know, he's he's been around for a long time. He's a reliable developer. This is kind of his. This is his. This is his. This is his gig, and he's saying that Apple's cut makes it impossible for him to sell software on there. See, he he used to do direct sales. He never. I don't know if he ever sold it as a box copy. Right. He's probably never had the experience. I of guess. The battle I guess that's where I find the flaw in your argument. Is it's not a one or a zero. It's not. It doesn't have to be in the app store or or in on a box shelf. 
because direct sales is absolutely a possibility. Okay, then you have to put up your own store. I mean, no one's stopping him from doing that in terms of, uh, well, on iPad they are. Yeah, I just, I don't buy it. I mean, the reality is people pay for software less than they used to, right? What about um, what about trying to up the price? Like, that would just devastate sales? It's very hard to raise the price, right? It's easy to lower. Hmm. Now, what you could do is like, this is a version 3 or whatever, right? And then up the price, but... We've seen some developers who will do like a discount on their website. Did you try that? Did you try that for a little while? I did. It, it ultimately didn't matter. People would prefer the App Store version or what? You know, there's a convenience factor to app stores, so that's... Yeah, people prefer the App Store version. Um, I will say on the App Store, I got a lot more kind of casual users, mm. which had very different expectations than, than the people who are buying via the web. Hmm. Yeah, but that's a whole different can of worms. I don't know. I, 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 I want to disagree with you because I like this guy so much. Uh <laughs> Uh, I like the audience's opinion too. Is thirty percent too much? And what's Google's take? Is thirty two right? Is that chat room? Do you remember what Google's take is? I can't. It recall. Is, it's thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Is thirty percent too much? Coderadio.reddit.com. Look for one sixty seven. All right. Real quick. I thought I liked this because Lifehacker had a how to know when you're ready to freelance as a self taught coder. And the reason why I liked it is it's not a huge long ass post. It's like it's like just um, four solid reasons. Are you ready for them? And I want to just tell me if you agree. Uh, okay. In general, you know when you're ready to take the leap to do these, if you can do these four things. Number one, build a couple of projects and be able to show them off. Okay. Number two, talk about decisions and reasons for making certain design or development choices. Number three, look at someone else's work and find areas that you are able to improve. Hmm. And number four, Go on Stack Exchange or similar and answer more questions than you need to ask. I don't know about that last one, but what do you think, Mr. Uh, Dominic? I don't know about that last one at all. I think that's a little... Uh... So would these three reasons be enough of a litmus test to know if you're ready to go out on your own? Build a couple I mean, of think, projects, show them off? I think you're, I think you're okay decisions. to start doing side projects once you can convince someone to hire you for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like this is like just a tiny fraction of what it takes to go off on your own, to, to be honest with you. Nothing in here yeah. says anything about money management. Well, like contracts and what happens when somebody's not happy, right? And, and what do you do when the cash flow doesn't come in for a little while? And, you know, then right. all of a sudden ca- a bunch of cash comes in. Like, you know, these kinds of things also you need to be ready for before you go off on your own. See, the thing is, is this is a market. What this is, is there's, they're advertising a free worksheet to know when your skills are ready. And then you click here to download. See, I'm going to try to download it. Yeah, there you go. Then you have to give your email address. And it has, wow, it has a 50% complete. So this is just a way. So they're, this is, they're just trying to sell to these people. This is kind of dirty, actually. Lifehacker. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm a little disappointed that Lifehacker sort of propagated this. It's a little too crap for me. Two things you should never... Yeah, this is... Yeah, this is no good. See, this is just trying to make money off people that are trying to make this decision about people that are daydreaming about leaving their day job. That's what they're trying to make money off of here. This is no good. I do not like this. Uh, so there you go, subreddit. There's our take on that. <laughs> they wanted to hear our take on it? There's our take on it. That's no good. That is no good. While we're in the other things that uh, people wanted us to take a look at, we had some good feedback uh, last week, we were trying to speculate. Are we seeing an increase in, I- in enterprise enterprises hiring iOS developers? 
because we're seeing an increase in Macs and iOS devices in enterprise? Well, uh, Phil and C writes in, he says, most enterprise ID departments are not hiring in-house iOS developers. Agreed. Heck, they're barely hiring Java developers anymore. New app development in the enterprise is mostly farmed out, usually overseas. Yeah. And that includes apps for mobile devices. As Dominic quipped, they're spending their money on licensing PhoneGap and other mobile software frameworks and not on actual in-house talent to do the work. Well, that's depressing. that's, That's exactly what I have been saying the whole time so now what now what nothing it's it's you know how many people how many companies still have shipping and receiving in their company and they don't just farm it out to ups right i mean how many companies oh big companies have in-house accounting but a lot of companies don't right they farm it out to hr block or a cpa um why would you expect them to have a full in-house fleet there well, hello there. Um, no, I know. I don't know what's going on behind me. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like someone's coming into your crypt. Yes. Uh, uh, hmm. Yeah, I guess I I would expect uh, I would expect enterprises to want to have custom applications. I guess I I guess I'm no. romanticizing that they. No, would... you're you're totally romanticizing. Here's what the enterprises want: the manager running the project wants to make sure they either get great results to justify the spend, or spend so little money that it doesn't matter. See, I, I back in my day, you had a couple developers on staff because you know you needed. Them you might to, have a couple, but you have a couple like general web guys just doing your day to day. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. It. Yeah, you're right. That is true. Yeah, yeah. And they're, is, they're they're doing more maintenance than anything else. Yeah, and, and I guess just more and more common to outsource it. But there right. is still people that are that are looking for local stuff too. Uh, yeah. Okay. So we had a, we had one more uh, one more story that the subreddit wanted to submit for our Friday edition of the show. Nice of them to do this for us, and they wanted to get our take. Let's see. Uh, let me go back. Let me get the name. I'll try to give credit to whoever submitted this. Uh, so uh, Carrie Hartline and uh, J.I. Meek both uh, wanted to get our take on the presumption of stupidity, and uh, it goes a little something like this, Mister Dominic. This is over on Aaron's blog. Uh, he says, "I've noticed a common bias that shows up in some founders." And I, I, I want to know, as somebody who's maybe, uh, who's maybe had some competition, I'd like to get your take on this. He says, they believe that their competitors are stupid or uncreative. They look at other businesses and identify influence, or inefficiencies and bad systems, and then they decide that those conditions exist because of dumb decisions on part of the founders or employees. He says, he says this is a bad belief to hold. In truth, competitors in the market are usually found, uh, founded and run by intelligent people making smart and logical decisions. It doesn't mean that all the decisions they make are necessarily the right ones, but they really and rarely function out of outright stupidity. When companies do things that diverge from what seems like a smart idea from the outside, it's much better idea to ask why those companies are doing things from the presumption of intelligence and logic rather than the presumption of stupidity. If you don't ask these questions, you might find yourself making the same decisions or ending up in the same place with your own set of rationalizations. I see this all the time. Essentially, assuming your competition is dumb, and that they haven't figured it out, and that it yeah, can make I, it can make you maybe a little uh, slow, a little lazy. Uh, did you, what What are your in, insights on this? So, I always assume my competition is is smarter and better than me in terms of capitalization and like business processes. So you stay nice and, and, and paranoid. Yeah. Well, the problem is you tend to be right. Yeah. Uh, you know, for instance, if your competition is VC backed, yeah, they're better capitalized than you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, there's a, or if you're doing consulting, right? Sometimes you can't afford to lose the sale. 
which is usually when you lose the sale. Yeah. Because you reek of that, right? Or another um, way, and you know, it can even be like one project is Indiegogo or Kickstarter backed even. It doesn't even have to be a VC these right. days. Right. I, you know, I have, of all the competitors and anything I've ever done that I've met, they've usually been better at some things and a lot worse at others. Hmm. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, quality of development is usually not that important, unfortunately, right? Um, networking is extremely important. Um, business processes are extremely important. Those are all things I'm terrible at, by the way. I would say that if you're walking around and you're doing anything and you're saying, oh, well, my competition are a bunch of morons, then you're probably shooting yourself in the foot. Mm. Um, you might get away with it for a while, but I, I can't possibly imagine a case where that's helpful. I mean, unless your competition like doing coke off their MacBook or something, like unless it's really something crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, let, let, let's just take an easy case of like two IT services shops or two dev shops head to head. There's probably certainly technical things one is better at than the other, but that usually doesn't matter, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, okay. So maybe let's uh, let's look at this from another angle. Actually, let's talk about this. So, is there actually a point in time? where you're really doing yourself a disservice by looking at your competition too much. Like, you know, you can only, I don't, maybe like looking in the rearview mirror isn't the, right, isn't the right way to put it, but there's only so much value in looking at somebody else. He goes on to say, uh, truly great businesses um, aren't built as counterpoints to existing companies. They become great because they meet a deep need that isn't being satisfied. That usually requires the kinds of creative and cognitive leaps that no amount of market analysis could possibly give you. Uh, so he goes, he says that no matter how much you analyze those whose decisions uh, have left you with opportunity. At the end of the day, here it is. There's only so much you can learn from looking at your competitors. And I really agree with that. Like, the issue is more like, are you, are you solving a specific need and niche and not so much what are your competitors doing? I almost think there's a disservice in watching your competitors too closely. Um, but you, I, it's like you got to walk a line there. You kind of have to keep an eye on what's going on. But at the same time, you don't necessarily want to be consumed by it. You don't want to let it be what gets the most of... Even a little bit of your attention too much, really, I think, in my opinion, because then that gets it yeah, it gets in that gets in the way of your creation in a way, like you can spend too much time obsessing about them yeah you, so so there's a dangerous thing too much and too little, right yeah, yeah, um, yeah, like how do you know where that line is even I don't know I don't think you do because I, I don't think there's anybody that well adjusted to be like this is the appropriate amount of attention to pay <laughs> uh, I, th- I think you're either overly paranoid. <laughs> Or you're just a babe in the woods and don't know what the hell you're doing. Yeah, it just probably it just comes and goes at different levels at different times depending on what's going on. Yeah, that's probably it. That's nice, grasshopper. That's nice. Uh, so hey, you know what the rest of my afternoon is filled with? You ready for this? My dad's getting married, and I'm the best man. Oh God! Congratulations, and you're the best man. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah. What? I mean, are you ironically the best man because you're like the worst man I've ever met? Or <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, it's funny because this is one of those family things that uh, uh, it, it just you know you're, you're glad that you don't do a lot often. But it started with uh, my dad came up to me and he's like, "Hey, boy, I just want to let you know that I hope you don't mind, but uh, Josette and I we're gonna go elope, and it's it's not that we don't want to do celebrate with you guys. We might have a little party when we get back, but we, you know we're just gonna do something private." 
Um, I'm like, oh, gosh, that's great, Dad. That's great. And, of course, I'm thinking to myself, sweet. I don't have to take time off work. And um, then a couple months go by, and it's like, uh, hey, would you mind being my best man? We're going to have a little bit bigger of a ceremony. I'm like, oh, oh, no, that'd be great. You know, and then, and then, and then my wife speaks up and she says, hey, would you like uh, Dylan and Abby to be uh, Ring Bear and Flower Girl? And they say, oh, no, no, we're not going to do anything all that big. So we'll just keep it simple. We're not going to have a Flower Girl or Ring Bear. And I think, whew, dodged a bullet on that one because let's, let's face it, getting a four-year-old and a six-year-old set up for a wedding is yeah, a... Not, not a great plan. No. So then, like a week goes by, and we get a text message, and they tell us how excited they are to have Dylan and Abby as the ring bear and flower girl. And so now, of course, that means we have to get outfits for everybody. We have to get everybody's haircut. We got to do all this stuff. And so we went to rehearsal last night. Now today, we have to show up at three o'clock. The wedding's at five o'clock. Now, see, we have three children: two years old, four years old, and six years old. To bring them to a place, even for an hour is a little hectic to bring them to a place that they have to be at for that long and then participate in the wedding is going to be a little crazy so that's my friday and then monday and tuesday we're uh, we're going to be at LinuxCon. so that's why we're recording quarter radio on a friday today is because monday i'll be down at LinuxCon. so if you're down at LinuxCon in seattle come say hi i'm sure Ooh. mr dominic will be there right yeah you're just gonna i'm just gonna fly i'm yeah. gonna take my linux copter yeah right take the linux copter you're not taking the uh, the linux uh, mobile this time huh because you know it's not a bad drive you could take highway no. two pretty much the whole way well, well well i've had my linux license suspended for, ah. uh, for driving a wall under the influence of mac <laughs> <laughs> hey wait a minute there you go you get a ding for that. that's good that was real good all right mr dominic anything else we need to cover on this friday edition no, I think that's it. Program. I have to boogity out of here, so it's been yep. a pleasure. I got to get to, you know what? I got the suit. I got I got the shirt. I got the tie. I forgot shoes. So I've got to go get shoes before I run off to the uh, to the picture taking. So that's what I'm doing for the afternoon, which I just love shoe shopping. All right. Well, here's a little bit of details before we go. CoderRadio.reddit.com. Submit topics, show ideas, and feedback, please. Uh, also, another great, like the, the number one spot for feedback. And do send them in. Let's, be, let's bulk up our feedback section. Go to JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. And choose Quota Radio from the drop down and send in your emails. We'll be back next Monday. We do this show live at noon Pacific, which is 3 p.m. Eastern over at jblive.tv. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Mr. Dominic, if you want to send anybody anywhere throughout the week, let them know where to go. Uh, just uh, at Dumanuka oh. on Twitter. Okay, at Dumanuka. All right, you can follow me on Twitter too, at Chris LES. I'll be like that. I'll be like that. At Jupiter Signal. We might have some LinuxCon shenanigans going down over there. Also, you never know, we might have something on the Instagram feed from LinuxCon. Uh, at, uh, what are we, uh, I think we're just Jupiter Broadcasting on Instagram. Nice and easy. Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting or whatever. Get some pictures from LinuxCon. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for doing this week's episode of Coda Radio. See you back here next week. Mm-hmm.